Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 18 to 25. Okay? Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. If you don't have your own Bible, you can grab a pew Bible here under the chair in front of you. It's black. It looks like this. And um, turn to page 857, and you'll find it there. If you want to take notes, you don't have much help here. It's just a blank page. But there inside the middle of your notes, there is a blank page in case you want to follow along and um, jot down some thoughts of what God's teaching you and things to meditate on both now and later. Hear the word of God. From Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. The birth, maybe better translated, the beginning of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him him, him Emmanuel. Excuse me. They will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son. And he named him Jesus. Father, we praise you for your son, Jesus. We praise you for his life, his death, his resurrection, and even here, his birth. We praise you for the truth of your word. We praise you for the obedience of Joseph and for what we can learn about you this morning. We pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things here in your word. We pray that you would open our hearts to you, that you would soften us and transform us through, for many of us, a familiar story. We pray that you would incline our hearts to your word and not to material gain. And we pray that you would satisfy us this morning with your steadfast covenant love, with the love of Christ, that we would rejoice and be glad all of our days. Help us now to come and worship and to value Christ deeper still. In Jesus' name, amen. Where do we get the power to obey God when we are in heart-wrenching and difficult circumstances? You know those types of circumstances, the circumstances that some of your friends or family go through where you say, well, if they sit in that situation, I could understand why. I mean, look at the pain Look at the difficulty of that situation. I could understand. Cut them some slack. I could see why they might sin in a situation like that. So in those types of difficult, heart-wrenching situations, where do we get the power to obey God? We all face 
or will soon face again if you haven't, if you're not currently in that season. We all face difficult challenges that are emotional, heart-shattering, that they're often relational, physical, and even spiritual. We all face these types of challenges. And even in the most difficult of circumstances, God lovingly calls us to trust Him and obey Him, even in a really difficult situation. How can we do that when we feel so powerless, so overwhelmed, and just we're just done? And yet God is still calling us in that moment, trust me, follow me, obey me. How do you do that? Well, I, my, I don't have enough life experience to just share from my own experience. Plus, you wouldn't want to hear about that anyways. We want to go to God's word for it. And Joseph here is a good guide for us. His heart must have been broken, split in half. He must have been reeling emotionally in this story and spiritually confused. So let's recap the story. Four scenes to the story. And then we'll, go, we'll, we'll, we'll draw some lessons out. But the, the scenes are, let me just retell it. Pregnancy, divorce, dream, and resolution. So um, Mary meets an angel. Angel Gabriel in Luke chapter 1 says, you're going to be pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, oh, I'm sorry, before that, Mary marries Joseph. Or we could call it half marries Joseph. Three quarters marries Joseph. She is betrothed to Joseph. My translation says, is engaged to Joseph. That is too easy of a... That translation fits with our concepts, but it's a little bit too weak. Engagement is weak. If you have any friends who've broken off an engagement, um, you do have a friend. If I'm your friend, then you have friends who've broken off their engagement. Sorry. Okay. Um, Anyways. um, If you have friends who've broken off an engagement, it's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. In betrothal... There's a, there's, a, there's a public contract, even between the families, that you're, you're basically half married. You're, you're, you're technically married. That the only way you could break off a betrothal is by legal public divorce or death. Of a, and if, you, if your spouse died during betrothal, that you were considered a widow or a widower, even though you haven't consummated the marriage yet. So what happened is you'd enter this, this public state of betrothal, and then the husband would get the house ready. It could take a few months to a year. And then while the wife is still living with her parents, and then, or, yeah, and then they come together in a public ceremony, and then she moves into the house, and then they, they continue to live as a married couple. And that's the, the consummation or the completion of the marriage. That's betrothal. So Mary enters into this betrothal relationship with Joseph, but doesn't move in yet, doesn't have that ceremony yet. And then she goes to her her cousin Elizabeth's house. We learned this from, from Luke chapter one. She goes to her cousin Elizabeth's house and, and stays there for at least three months, a few months there. She comes back, runs into Joseph, and she's showing. She's pregnant. She's been gone for a few months. Down south. And now she comes back and she's pregnant. If you're Joseph, what do you think? What happened? What did you do? And she says something like, now we don't know if they had this conversation yet before this, but well, it, I, I didn't do anything wrong. No sin. It was, it was God. It was a miracle. Now, if you're Joseph, what, what do you think at that point? Right? I mean, yeah, like, I mean, how, how, do you, this, how many times has this happened in your experience, right? At that point, you're not, you know, you're just, what? I mean, if Francis did that, 
right? If we're engaged, we're engaged for four months. She went away for two months somewhere, came back and she was pregnant and she just said, it was a miracle of God, I promise. Nothing sinful happened. You know, we go to the next step of this story, which is divorce, right? Or break off the engagement. You just go here because I'm not, as much as I would like to believe you, I just, I can't. I can't go there. So, so, so this next, um, so that's the pregnancy. Joseph finds out. Now he wants to divorce Mary, but he's a righteous man, which means he's going to follow the laws. Now, in Deuteronomy 22, verses 23 and 24, it says that if a, if a young woman who is a virgin is engaged to a man and another man encounters her in the city and sleeps with her, it, uh, take the two of them out to the gate of that city and stone them to death. The young woman, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's fiance. You must purge the evil from among you. That was the, the law covenant of Moses. Now, that wasn't followed in Jesus' day. Okay, so it was, it's not like they were going to do that to Mary. But still, it was still a very public scandal. It would have been a public shaming, and there would have been an, a, an illegal divorce would be required. So not necessarily execution for Mary at this point, but a, a legal divorce would be necessary. And, and it would be shameful for Mary, who now is pregnant without a husband, if, if Joseph divorced her. So, so um, it says in verse 19, her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her publicly, not wanting to shame her in that way, decided to divorce her how? Secretly or quietly, right? Decide to divorce her secretly or quietly. And so um, he wants to divorce her. But the next scene, so you got pregnancy, divorce, and then the dream. Then Joseph goes to sleep. Now, this is the heartache, right? Your, your, your heart is broken. Now, by the way, we don't know how broken his heart is emotionally. We're thinking of our dating culture and what you were like before you got married. In that day, you almost didn't pick your spouse, right? Your parents just kind of picked. They made the arrangement. You had the betrothal. And you didn't really get to know your spouse until, until the final ceremony. And so um, that's when you start to get to know your spouse. So we don't know how, how deep their relationship and friendship was. Maybe they knew each other. Maybe they didn't. We don't know. But Joseph had to still be in a very heart-wrenching situation, even for that time, okay? And so he has a dream. Verse 20 says, he considered these things. As he considered these things, an angel appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you, Joseph, are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Wake up. Then Joseph wakes up, right? So that's his dream. What does is, what, what is the angel tell him to do? Go what? Go marry Mary. You have to marry her. Don't be afraid to do it. Go marry her. So God is telling Joseph to do what? To get married, right? To finish off the marriage, to not divorce. That's what I'm talking about when I'm saying, how do you get the power to obey a command like that when your heart is broken and when you're spiritually confused? And everyone in the culture and every, all of your friends would totally understand if you divorced and actually wouldn't understand if you actually obeyed, right? But Joseph, what does he do in verse, at the very end of this chapter in verse 24? He woke up and did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He obeyed. And so that's a resolution. Joseph um, is brought to a certain state of mind where he's at peace and he's able to obey God in marrying Mary even under these difficult circumstances. All right, so what's the main point of this, chat, of this section? I think the main point in Matthew, so I'm going to do the main point of the text and then the main idea for us today. So those are a little bit different, the way I'm going to apply it to you. The main, I, the main point here for, for us understanding the book is that God guides Joseph to marry Mary, to finish marrying Mary, 
and raise Jesus as his legal son. That's the point of this in the story. Jesus has to be the legal son of Joseph, and God commands and guides Joseph to do that, and Joseph now has to obey God. And and then there are four reasons why God guides Joseph in this direction. So how am I applying it to us? There's four reasons why God's guiding Joseph in this this direction. What does that have to do with us today? We're not Joseph. Our fiance is not pregnant with a virgin birth. So what, what does this have to do with us today? Here's what it has to do with us. We need to, here's the main idea, value deeply Jesus' worth by relearning a story of his birth. Okay, little rhyme there. Value deeply Jesus' worth by relearning the story of his birth, a story of his birth. So for Joseph, he needed to learn these four things or he needed these four things to guide him to the right decision or it justifies his decision. For us, these same four things help us value Christ deeply as we go over the story again, okay? So value deeply Jesus' worth by relearning a story of his birth. And we're gonna value deeply Jesus' worth by learning four things. His origin, his mission, his prophecy, and his throne or his kingship, okay? So we're gonna learn his origin, his mission, his prophecy, and his throne. And if this story is familiar to you, hopefully as you relearn it again, you can value Christ even deeper by, by learning something and thinking afresh on some of these things. So, so let's go first of all to his origin, Jesus' origin. Verse 20 tells us, after Joseph considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what has been conceived in her is from who? The Holy Spirit. So what do we learn about his origin? Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Mary became pregnant by the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit. Mary was not promiscuous. She was not unfaithful to Joseph. She was not unfaithful to the promise she had made in her betrothal to marry Joseph. She did not sin. Now, this is not deity crassly having physical relations with a human as other pagan, religion, other pagan religions and mythologies taught to their religions. You know, Hercules, half, half God, son of Zeus and son of a human. And so the, the gods copulating with humanity to, to produce these half God men. That's not what, so some skeptics might, oh yeah, Christianity, it's just one of those ancient mythologies where, 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 where just like Zeus and, and Hercules and that story or something like that. No, this is not that. Jesus was conceived miraculously by the Holy Spirit with Mary being a virgin. She's a virgin. Okay, she does not have relations in that way. She just miraculously has now an embryo developing in her womb. Now, look at verse 18, because I want to point out, we're talking about the origin of Jesus Christ. Do you see, what does it say in your translation? Mine says the birth of Jesus Christ came about in this way. What does yours say? Instead of birth, the birth of Jesus Christ. Anyone have a different word? there instead of the birth of jesus christ some might say the origin of jesus christ or um in in math in genesis 5 1 it says the the genealogy of adam came about in this way so it's also genealogy the beginning now the the greek word i'll tell you the greek i don't quote greek here often but you'll you'll see why in a second it's genesis the genesis or genesis of Jesus Christ came about in this way. What word do you think of when you hear Genesis? Genesis. And what does Genesis mean? Beginning. Beginning. Origin. 
The beginnings of Jesus Christ, the beginning of Jesus Christ came about in this way. And actually that same word for Genesis right there in 118, it's also in verse 1. I missed that last Sunday in my sermon. In verse 1, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It's actually an account of the genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew in chapter in this first chapter, he's trying to pull your mind with that word back to what? Genesis and back to the creation, back to the beginning, back to the origin, not just of Jesus, but the origin of the whole creation. The origin of all humanity in Genesis 5, 1, where it says the book of the Genesis or the genealogy of Adam, of, of humanity, it says in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so Matthew may be suggesting to us here a new creation through Jesus. Just like in Genesis chapter 1, God created the world and the spirit of God was what? hovering over the water in the beginning. And even in the beginning of humanity, Adam started to have children and humanity began from a man who had no biological father or mother, but no biological father. And now you have Jesus and the beginning of Jesus and you have the spirit, like the spirit hovering and giving life in Genesis 1 and Genesis, you know, in in humanity. Now you have the spirit giving life out of nothing into the womb of Mary. And and this baby there has no biological father, just like Adam has no biological father. Matthew is drawing your attention that Jesus is bringing in the new creation, a new humanity who's going to be under Jesus, just like the old humanity was under Adam. A new creation created by the Holy Spirit, just like the old creation was given life by the Holy Spirit. Spirit. And so here, Jesus is conceived. So, so Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit in this passage. Let's just move on to the story of Matthew. Later on, he's led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to face Satan. And then he does miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit so that if you say, you're doing, the, you're doing those miracles by the power of Satan, Jesus says, that's the blasphemy of what? The Holy Spirit. So Jesus is doing miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then when Jesus dies, it says in Romans that he's raised to life by the Spirit. And then not only that, when John the Baptist is talking about Jesus and the Holy Spirit, he says, someone's coming after me. I baptize you with water. But this guy who's coming after me, he's going to immerse you not in water. He's not going to dip you into water. He's going to immerse you into who? The Holy Spirit. And so Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ministry, will come about by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus will start to immerse his followers in the Holy Spirit. And so when Pentecost comes and Jesus ascends to heaven on 40 days after his resurrection from the dead, 10 days later, the Holy Spirit descends because Jesus is sending the Holy Spirit to immerse his people in the Holy Spirit and the new creation, a new humanity is created through Jesus, who started as himself, his humanity at least, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so here we see that Jesus, so, so the new creation comes even here. The new creation of the whole universe, which we're going to enjoy forever and ever in the new earth, begins with an embryo that miraculously started in the womb of Mary. That's where the new creation begins, right there. That's awesome. And, and these are consistent. The fact that Jesus is born of a virgin, no biological father, that's consistent with the idea that Jesus is fully God and fully man. It's consistent with the idea that he is sinlessly born and sinlessly lived without a sin nature. And it's consistent with the idea that he is the new Adam. So what does this mean for us? Do you love the smell of new car? 
Some of you don't like new car smell. Some of you love the smell of a new car. Or the feeling of a fresh, clean start. 2018, particularly for me, was, was, was particularly refreshing to just get a clean slate for the year. Who, who doesn't love a new start? A, a new, fresh, clean do-over. Well, this is what we have and can renew continually in Jesus because he's bringing the new creation by the Holy Spirit. Paul had a fresh start, didn't he? He was zealously, mistakenly killing Christians and trying to incarcerate them to stop them from spreading this message about Jesus. And then he was renewed. He was made a new creation when God knocked him off his horse on the road to Tarsus. And then Paul says even later, and now I'm being renewed day by day in the inner person through the Holy Spirit. So, I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, let us rejoice in our King. Let's rejoice in Christ because by the, he's conceived by the Holy Spirit and he immerses us in the Holy Spirit and he continually renews us in the Holy Spirit so that we might experience deeper and deeper the new creation. Praise the Lord. Jesus has a divine origin, no biological father, and then he creates that divine origin in us. Not through virgin birth, but through our being born again and getting new life, and a new humanity, and a fresh start. So brothers and sisters, if you feel like you need a fresh start, if you're, and you're a Christian, you're like, well, I'm already a Christian, so I already got my fresh start, and that was years ago, I don't get another fresh start. Well, no, as a Christian, you repent, and you keep trusting Christ. Amen. You learn now, you pick up now, you wipe the slate clean right now. You trust Christ, you turn from your sins, you receive forgiveness, and you move on, and you grow, and you grow, and you grow. So brothers and sisters, keep growing, keep getting that fresh start. Keep renewing and repenting instead of making that a discouragement to keep you in your sin. And if you're not a Christian, you also have the offer of a fresh start if you would just come to Jesus. Value deeply Jesus' worth by relearning a story of his birth. And firstly, we learn that by valuing his origin. Secondly, we're going to value his mission, Jesus' mission. Look at verse 21. What was his mission? In Matthew 1, 21, we learn his mission. It says... She, this is the angel still talking to Joseph about the fact that Mary was not unfaithful. He says, Joseph, Mary was not unfaithful. She will give birth, not to a girl. So here, there's no um, ultrasounds where you can get the gender beforehand, right? Party, birthday party, or not birthday party, the gender reveal, and you're going to cut the cake. Is it blue cake, or is it pink inside, or the balloons, or, you know, we all have this gender reveal parties today. Back then, you didn't get gender revealed. The gender reveal was when the baby was born. That was the, re- the gender reveal, except for here. Here he gets a gender reveal. She will give birth, not to a daughter, but to a son. And you, Joseph, are to name him Jesus. Anyone know the Old Testament or the Hebrew translation of that? Uh, Joshua. Or, yeah, Yeshua, but Joshua. Joshua would be the Old Testament translation of Jesus. So Joshua, Jesus, same thing. You will name him Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua. You will name him Yeshua because he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus' mission is clear. He will do what? Save his people from what? From their sins. Now, Yeshua has Yah in there. What is that? Hallelujah. When you think of Yah, what's the Yah for? Short for what? Yahweh. And Shua, you don't know that one, but Shua in Hebrew is saves. Yeshua, Jesus' name means Yahweh saves. That's his name. His mission is tied to his name. Jesus is, Yahweh, is, is, the, is the manifestation of Yahweh saving his people from their sins. Now, the name doesn't mean Yahweh saves from sin. The name just means Yahweh saves. And that's why Jesus' mission was often misunderstood. It's still misunderstood today. What did Jesus come for? What was his mission? His mission 
gets at the heart of what's wrong in the world. The, the very core, the, the greatest problem in our world today is what Jesus solves. He will be called Jesus. You will name him Jesus and he will save his people from their sins. sins. So what's the greatest problem in the world? Sins. And so his mission If he's going to reverse the curse for the whole world, he has to tackle the greatest source of all problems, which is sin. So get this, brothers and sisters. His mission gets at the heart of what's wrong in the world and what's what's wrong in your life. What's wrong in your life today? Now, I've been doing a lot of counseling lately in our church, different couples, different people, different situations in our church, as you've been calling me, and you're always welcome to do that. And as I've been doing it, one of my key questions is, what do you think the main problem is? I ask that question often. What do you think the main problem is? And the answer here is, it's what? Sin. So what's the main problem in your life? Your main problem in your life today is not your family member. It's not your spouse. If they would just change. Your main problem is not your singleness. It's not your health problems. It's not your political situation, our political situation. It's not your job. It's not your money. It's not your feelings. It's not your fame, reputation, and power. Your problem is not your lack of fame, reputation, and power. Your problem is not your lack of pressure, um, pleasure, your lack of, of living in an ideal situation. That is not your problem. What then is our problem? It's our sin. It's our self-centeredness, our self-exaltation. It's our idolatry, our worship of everything else but God, anything else but God. It's our slavery to run to everything except God when we have problems. To find our influence, that's what we want. We want power or our approval because we want love or our comfort because we want pleasure or our control because we want security and peace of mind. And so we do, we run to everyone and everything other than God because we are rejecting God at our core. That's our problem. And the wages of sin, the, pro- the, the, the consequences of this problem is what? Death, eternal death in hell under God's judgment for rejecting and attacking and violating the holiness of God when you're, you're there to bear his image. And so Jesus comes to solve that problem. That's his mission. One New Testament scholar writes, he will rescue his people not from slavery in Egypt, but from the slavery of sin. The exile, we talked about that last week, the exile they have suffered not just in Babylon, but in their own hearts and lives. This is not a merely, this is not merely a uh, you are forgiven of your sins and you're now a Christian type of salvation. When it says save people from your sins, it's not merely initial salvation. Now you're a Christian. This is a eschatological final end times, happy ending, bringing in a perfect world with perfect humans in perfect harmony type of salvation. This is a whole universe type of salvation. Now it takes individuals who are going to be there to be part of it, but when you hear salvation and he's going to save his people from, her, from their sins, it's not just converting you. It's converting you and then transforming you. And it's not just converting you and then transforming you. It's converting you and transforming you and giving you a new body. It's not just converting you and transforming you and giving you a new body. It's, give, it's doing that to a, a whole new humanity of people who are going to be converted and transformed and have a new body. And they're going to be living in a new earth. And they're going to have God there with them. And they're going to live there with no more crying, no more pain, no more sin forever. That's what Jesus brings by saving his people from their sins. And we can't save ourselves. We can't do it ourselves. We can't make this world a better place. We can't save ourselves from the mess we are in because we're the ones who create that mess. 
And every time we try, we mix solution with more problem. And so you increase it. And so we can't save ourselves. Our religion can't save us. So who must save us? Well, it's Jesus. And how does he save us? You're in Matthew 1. Keep your finger there or your paper there and turn to Matthew 20. Look at Matthew 20, verses 18 and 19. Turn to Matthew 20, 18 and 19. Jesus says in verse 18, see, he's talking to his disciples. See, we are going up to Jerusalem and he's predicting something to them. This is how he's going to save us from our sins. The son of man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death. His charge will be guilty. They will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised. Look at verse 28. Jump down to verse 28. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to what? Serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. How will he save his people from their sins? He will save his people from their sins. How will he bring them to safety? He will save them and bring them to safety from sins by going out of safety himself into the very danger and consequences of sin. He will save them from judgment by being judged. He will save them from condemnation by being condemned. He will save them from their sins by taking the sins on himself on the cross as a ransom for many. This is the gospel. This is the good news of the world. That a God who did not have to initiate anything initiated sending his son. And the son who did not have to come and did not have to live and did not have to die for our sins comes down and dies for our sins so that we can be forgiven and saved. If you're not a Christian, you're here. I want you to think about this. I want you to know this. Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is not religion, and it's not anti-religion, okay? It's a third way. Some people think, oh, if you're telling me to be a Christian, you're just telling me to be religious. No, that's not what I'm saying. Oh, so you're saying it's not religion. No, I'm not saying that either. So then what are you saying, PJ? Christianity, at the core, our message is a relationship with Jesus that transforms and makes all of your life about this relationship in a way that's all-consuming and life-reorienting. So come to Jesus, not a religion. Come to Jesus, not rules, customs, and meetings. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't rules, customs, and meetings. Just like when I married my wife, I wanted her. I wasn't thinking, okay, I want house rules, and I want scheduled date nights, and I want coordinated schedules of how we're going to be parenting and how we're going to keep constant communication to run our family. That's not what I was. Now, does that come with marrying somebody? Yes, but I wasn't saying, oh, I want these things. No, I want you, right? I want, I want to marry you. And if, you're, if this relationship is literally gonna become all-defining, then everything else is gonna revolve around it and it's gonna shape your life and customs and everything else, right? And if Jesus, if you're going to have Jesus and this relationship, you can't have him number two. He must be central because he's king and God and Lord and savior and treasure. And if you have Christ, It's not the same thing as having religion, but it will reshape everything about you in ways that make you truly human and joyful. So we're not saying it's anti-religion where there is no lifestyle, but we're saying the lifestyle is not the life. The life is Jesus himself, the way, the truth, and the life. 
And so I'm calling, if you're not a Christian, here's God's offer to you. You can have salvation. You can have life. You can have forgiveness from all your sins because we're all condemned for our sins before a holy God. But you can have forgiveness if you'll repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. He became a ransom for you. So enter a relationship with Jesus today by calling on him to save you, even where you're sitting right now. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Jesus is the hero of the Bible. Now, you could do hero, uh, heroics two, two different ways that are wrong. One, the hero can solve the wrong problem. Now, does Jesus solve the wrong problem? You know, there's a, a scene, spoiler alert. I guess it's not really a spoiler. It's not the main part of a story. But Spider-Man Homecoming, one of the more recent movies. In uh, the Spider-Man movie, there's a guy who's um, stealing I'm, I'm spoiling a little piece, but he's stealing a car, and so he's trying to, or he's breaking, he's breaking into a car. He's breaking into a car, so Spider-Man comes, he webs him, and he pulls his head and just basically slams his head on the thing and says, stop, you know, stop that. And the guy says, this is my car, you idiot, you know. And, um, you know, he's like, oh, I'm sorry, you know, like, I'm trying to, I lock myself out. And so um, that's a, a classic story of the hero getting the problem wrong. Right, And so some people, don't you do this as a Christian? You're, you're trying to tell people about Jesus and salvation. And they're like, that's not my problem, you idiot. Right? Or, or, you know, you need Jesus. Well, Jesus came to save me from my sins. What I really need is salvation from my financial situation or from my relational problem. As if Jesus came to solve the wrong problem when he came to solve the problem of sin. He did not come to solve the wrong problem of sin. That is the right problem. That is the problem. Another way of getting hero- heroics wrong is when the people are seeking the wrong solution. Okay, so Jesus fed 5,000 men plus women and children with five loaves and two fish. And then they come to Jesus the next day saying, we want you, we want you. And Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 26, I tell you, you're not looking for me. Or you are looking for me not because you saw the signs, not because of the point, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Because I filled your bellies and I saved you a meal. You didn't have to pay for it. You got a free meal. That's That's why you're seeking me. And then Jesus says, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life that the Son of Man will give you because God the Father set his approval on him. I'm here to solve your real problem. I don't want to just feed you for a day. I want to feed you for an eternity Amen. away from hell. Now, they didn't want that. I just want food until I die. You know, just give me free meals until I die. That's what I want. And Jesus is like, no, you're, you're looking for the wrong solution. I am the right hero, but you're looking for the wrong solution. I'm here for a deeper problem, okay? And so Christian brother and sister, just application here before we move on. Christian brother and sister... You have been saved by grace through faith, and yet we still need saving from our sins, don't we? Our personal sins, our corporate people group sins as well, personal selfishness, corporate people group selfishness, moment by moment, day by day, we need forgiveness, we need salvation. So let us increase the pattern. Here's an exhortation to you, Christians. Increase your personal and corporate pattern of self-consciously repenting from sins confessing your sins and trusting in Jesus. That's why we do confession from sin here every Sunday. One, we need to confess it. Two, we need to grow in confessing sins privately as well. So that's why every Sunday we come here, rain or shine, we will do a prayer of confession because we need to grow in this because we need Jesus who saves us still from our sins. If you're a child here, Bethany Baptist Church children, listen up here, children. Sometimes you can get confused with thinking, am I a Christian? Am I not a Christian? I'm not sure if I'm a Christian. How can I know? Let me tell you, don't focus on that. Instead, even though it's okay to think about that question once in a while, don't focus on that if you're a child in our church growing up here, hearing the gospel all the time. Focus on who Jesus is, that Jesus came to save you 
from your sins. And all you, what you need to do is to keep on trusting Jesus. Keep on confessing your sins. Keep on turning from your sins to Jesus. Children, never get comfortable with hiding your sin, even from your parents. Never get comfortable hiding your sin or you'll get uncomfortable with Jesus. Rather, keep staying uncomfortable with your sin so that you keep drawing near to and, and, and being comfortable with Jesus. So don't worry about, am I saved? Am I not saved? Am I Christian? Am I not? Just keep looking for Jesus and keep staying uncomfortable with your sin and repenting. Amen. Church family, what does this mean for us? If Jesus' mission is to save people from, our, from their sins, what's our mission? Our mission is not to die on the cross for sins, but our mission is also to, to take up our cross and die to ourselves to bring people the cross of Jesus Christ for their sins, right? Amen. To bring the message to them. That's our goal. And so let's remember as a church family, our goal to our neighbors and to the nations is to bring the gospel to them. Okay, so value deeply Jesus' worth by relearning a story of his birth. Namely, number one, his origins. Number two, we, learn, we relearned his uh, mission. And now number three, let's think about his prophecy. Let's think about his prophecy, a 700-year-old prophecy. So go back to Matthew chapter one and let's look at verse 22. <coughs> Matthew 1, 22. Here's another reason why, jo- why Joseph should not be so offended that Mary's saying she's a virgin and yet she's pregnant because of a 700-year-old prophecy, okay? Mary was faithful to Joseph in betrothal. Isaiah, so in Matthew 1, verse 23, it says, or 22, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son and you will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, someone said earlier, God is with us. So here, the virgin will give birth, will conceive and give birth to a son. So some, some take this to either be the son of the king or the son of Isaiah. But go back, so keep your finger here and go to Matthew 7. I mean Isaiah 7. So turn to the left if you can. If not, don't worry, you can just listen. But Isaiah chapter 7, uh, look at verse 14. I just want to point out some things here in Isaiah 7. If you have a pew Bible, it's on page 606. Okay, page six. <coughs> okay, so here in Matthew or Isaiah seven verse fourteen, you have the you have the prophecy. All right, Isaiah seven fourteen says um, says what we just read. The Lord Himself will give you a sign. Now let me set up the, this context for Isaiah seven fourteen. Isaiah is prophesying to the king of Judah, and here's the danger that's going on. That's the, the southern kingdom. The northern king, the northern kingdom king, the king of Israel, and the king of Aram are now threatening Judah. They're threatening the king, King Ahaz. And so Isaiah comes and says, hey, guess what? Don't worry about them. So uh, Ahaz is panicking. He's scared of the king. They're about to dominate them militarily. And so he's freaking out. And then Isaiah says, don't be scared. God will deliver you. You know what? You want me to show you that God's going to deliver you? Ask God for any sign. Ask God for a sign, and he'll give it to you. Ask for a sign. And Ahaz, who's not, he's not close to God, not, not pleasing God, he says very, uh, very religiously but falsely, you know, with a false pretension, he's like, oh, I don't want to test God. I'm not going to ask for a sign, even though the prophet just commanded you to ask for a sign. I don't want to test God. I'm not going to ask God for any sign. And then Isaiah says, you fool. Or not, I'm paraphrasing here, but he's like, no, listen. How dare, like God is telling you to ask for a sign. And guess what? God's going to give you a sign anyways. And here's the sign. Isaiah seven fourteen: A virgin will conceive 
and have a son and you will name him Emmanuel. There it is. And, and so guess what it has? You're panicking about this, these two kings up north. Don't worry about them because a virgin, here's God's with you and I'll prove God's with you because a virgin's gonna conceive and give birth to a son. Now this is 700 plus years before Jesus came. How comforting is it that you're gonna get a sign that's gonna happen 700 years later when you're long dead? I mean, does that matter at all? Doesn't matter, right? What kind of sign is that? Well, it's not that sign because look at verse 15 of Isaiah 7. This is why I had you turn here. So uh, a, a virgin will conceive, give birth to a son, and you'll call him Emmanuel. By the time he learns to reject what is bad and choose what is good, he will be eating curds and honey. So he's going to start to learn things, learn right and wrong. He'll start eating food. He's, he's not a baby anymore. So by the time he's not a baby anymore, verse 16, um, for the, before the boy knows to reject what is bad and choose what is good, what's going to happen? Before this boy who's going to be born learns to reject things, so becomes about two or three years old, before the boy becomes two or three, what's going to happen? The land of the two kings you dread will be what? Will be what? Abandoned. The baby will be born, and before the baby gets old enough to discern right and wrong, the kings that you're scared of, they're going to be gone. Assyria's going to wipe them out. That's going to happen within years, not 700 years later. So the sign here is not a sign about 700 years later. The sign here is about in Ahaz's time. Does that mean there were two virgins? There was another virgin birth? No. It doesn't mean there's another virgin birth. The word here for virgin can also be translated young woman in the Hebrew. So what Isaiah was saying was, Ahaz, don't panic. A young woman's going to give birth to a child. They're going to name him Emmanuel. And it's going to be a little bit out of the ordinary because she's going to be younger than, than, than usual, probably. And it's going to be a little bit um, odd. And that odd birth is a sign to you that God is with you. God is with us. Emmanuel, God is with us. And, and you won't be attacked by Aram or Israel. Does that make sense? So that's a prophecy. It's a prophecy about a baby that's going to be born in Ahaz's lifetime. So then you're reading it and you're thinking, well, what is Matthew doing? Why is Matthew quoting it, right? Why does Matthew say this is fulfilled in Jesus when it was fulfilled with a baby that was born 700 years plus from a young woman to show Ahaz that, that God was going to deliver the people? Well, it's fulfilled there 700 years before, but there's a greater sense of the promise and a greater sense of the fulfillment. Let me show you what I mean. That's why I'm having you in Isaiah. So there's that promise of a, of a, of a weird birth that's going to be a sign for God, and God is going to be with us. So then go to verse, chapter 8, verse 4. Isaiah 8, verse 4. Now, Isaiah has a, ch- has a child with a prophetess in, in Isaiah 8, 3, and then it says in Isaiah 8, 4, before the boy knows how to call father or mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoils of Samaria, those are the two threats, will be what? Carried off to who? The king of Assyria. So now, so get this. Isaiah's having a baby from a prophetess. And when he has that baby, that baby's not going to become old enough until these two threats are what? Wiped out, right? So that there's maybe a fulfillment of that prophecy of, of, of Isaiah 7.14. So, so, okay, but let's move on. Go to Isaiah 8.10. Go to verse 10. Devise a plan and it will fail. Make a prediction. It will not happen. You're not going to be destroyed. Why? For what? Who's with us? God is with us. Give me the Hebrew for that. What is God? God is with us? God with us? Emmanuel. That's what it says. Don't be scared. You know why? Because Emmanuel. Because God is with us. And so you get this idea of a child that's going to be born and God is with us to deliver us from the threats. And so you're saying, how does this apply to Jesus though? Where's the greater promise? Well, go to chapter 9, verse 2. It's talking about a greater problem than just Aram. Um, 
than Damascus and Samaria. Look at chapter 9, verse 2. You've got to read 7, 8, and 9 together. Chapter 9, verse 2, here's the problem. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness because it's a dark moment. And then verse 6, for unto us a what? A child is born, a son is given, a son will be given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The, the dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. So there's this promise about this baby of a, of a young woman to be born. And then Isaiah has a baby and it's all having to do with the northern two threats. And then there's a greater promise though of another child that's gonna be born so you have this miraculous birth promise sign thing. And then Isaiah is taking that idea, but he's saying, yeah, it was fulfilled here, but it's going to be an even greater baby with a greater fulfill- fulfillment and greater than just a young woman. She's going to actually be an actual virgin. So Isaiah is taking the pattern here and the significance of this pattern of this history, and he's projecting it with an even greater significance going forward into the future. So when Matthew reads Isaiah seven fourteen. He sees the historical fulfillment, and then he says, not only is there a historical fulfillment, there's a pattern of significance that's greater being fulfilled when Mary was an actual virgin. Does that make sense? So this is fulfilling the pattern and the type and the projection of that Isianic prophecy. So what's the point of the prophecy? The child born from a strange and significant circumstance will rule on the throne of David, and Jesus is the greater fulfillment of that promise. All right? So going back to Matthew chapter 1, going back to Matthew chapter 1, Jesus was born of a virgin, fulfilling the prophecy. If you're not a Christian, you're saying, you know what? Babies aren't born of virgins, so this can't be true. This is not true. Well, before, I guess, um, what do you call it, in vitro fertilization, I guess there, it's possible now. But miracles like the virgin birth in that time never happened, so this is clearly not true. If you think that as a non-Christian, let me just help you see what else you think. You must, ha- you must believe, if you believe that, that it's impossible, you must also believe that there isn't a God who's powerful enough to do it, right? So you must either be an atheist or you believe in a God who's weak, a weak God, and that's part of your faith. Um, you, but that, that's not what we believe. We believe in a God who's powerful and can do all things that are consistent with his nature and not sinful. We believe that. And so what is a miracle? So, so what we, believe this, we believe in miracles, in other words. And what is a miracle, though? Some people say a miracle is a changing of the natural laws. That's not necessarily true. What is a miracle? Here's a, a definition of a miracle. A miracle is God. It's not God invading our world with action, as if God was not always invading our world and act, act, active. It's God. A miracle is a special, out-of-the-ordinary, attention-getting action by God to point, himself, to, him, to, point to himself and to his word. That's what it is. It's an attention-grabbing action that's out of the ordinary. That's what a miracle is. And we believe in miracles here. Amen. And so if you're not a Christian, we encourage you to think about a powerful God who can do this. So what's Emmanuel, his name will be called Emmanuel. That doesn't mean his name will actually be Emmanuel. He's symbolizing Emmanuel, which is God what? God with us. God is with us. And when Jesus is here, isn't God with us? Amen. God is with us, right? Matthew 28, 20, Jesus says, Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations and lo, I am with you always. always to the end of the age. So he's talking about he's always with him. He's always with us. Jesus is always 
with us. And how, how is God always with us? Through Jesus. Well, Jesus is God. So if, God, if Jesus is here with us, then God is with us because Jesus is God. He's God and man in one person. So let me show you the, the presence of God in three steps. In Jesus, in us, and in the new creation. In Jesus, he's God and man, so God is with us. But in us, as the, as the temple, so John 1, 14, the word became flesh, right? Dwelt among us. But in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Because of what Jesus has done, now Jesus is in us and the Holy Spirit is in us. And so therefore, because of Jesus, God is still with us, Emmanuel. And then in the new creation, um, God will be there with his people. We will see his face and his name will be on our foreheads and we will reign with Christ and sit on the throne with Christ. We will be with God and God will be with us. God is with us. This is the covenant presence of God. John Frame def- defines it this way. Covenant presence then means that God commits himself to us. This is sweet. To be our God and make us his people. He delivers us by grace and rules us by his law. And he rules us not only up from above, but with us and within us. So it says here in John or Matthew 1 verse 21, you, will name, you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And then it says... Um, yeah, it says in, I'm sorry, verse 23. Verse 23 says, they will call him what? Emmanuel. Who's the they there? Who will call Jesus Emmanuel? Who will call Jesus God, God is with us? Who will look at Jesus and when they say Jesus, they say God is with us? Who's the they there? It's those who call on Jesus to save them from their sins, right? It's those who believe in Christ as God with us. It's the one who gladly call Jesus God with us. So what does this mean for you, brothers and sisters? If God fulfilled a 700-year-old prophecy in a greater way, will God keep his promises to you? Will God take you through to the end? Will God complete the work he began in you? Yes. Will God give you grace in your trials to do good for his glory? Yes. Will God give you a new body? Yes. Will he put you on a new earth to rule with him and his people forever? Yes. He will do it. God is with you. If, If he's with you for these big promises and this bigger deal then he's also with you with the smaller situations of, of your trials and your personal life and mission. So brothers and sisters, God is with you. So what do we learn so far? His mission, I'm sorry, not his mission first, his origin, conceived of the Holy Spirit, his mission to save people from their sins. Thirdly was his prophecy that he fulfilled about being born of a virgin. And lastly and shortly, his throne. His throne, his kingship. He is to rule on the throne of David forever. Look at verses 24 and 25. Matthew 1, 24, when Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. You're reading that, and you're saying, PJ, where's kingship there? I don't see kingship and throne. It's there. Did Joseph marry, marry yes or no? Yes. And did he um, name Jesus, yes or no? Did Joseph name Jesus? Yes. yes, he did. Why was it the goal of the angel to get Joseph, because remember, Joseph was going to divorce her. Why was it the angel's goal and God's goal to get Joseph to actually marry Mary? Well, let's think one more, let's just take another step back and remember Joseph's struggle. Look at verse 20 again. The angel says, Joseph, son of David, don't be what? Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. So let's just think about it. What was he afraid of? What are you scared of? Why would Joseph be afraid? Why would he be afraid to be Mary's husband and Jesus' father, the baby's father? 
Even though he knows Mary didn't cheat on him, he, I mean, one, he was afraid because uh, she was pregnant from another man, presumably. But then when he found out she wasn't pregnant from another man, why would he still be afraid? Why would you still be afraid? Because if you marry Mary, then you would take the scorn and shame of the fact that, dude, your wife cheated on you, right? From everyone else. You'd be, you'd be looked at as a fool from other people. Or you'd be looked at as a fornicator because you violated the betrothal yourself, that you, you slept with her before the time. And so you would be looked at as a sinner. So, so Joseph would face public scorn and shame and misunderstanding from his family, from his friends, from his neighbors, and from larger society. And Joseph could have been scared of that. But why is it so important that even if, he's, even if that's going to happen, which probably, presumably it did happen, why was Joseph still not to be scared and do it anyways? Why did he have to do this? Because what does what is Joseph called in verse 20 of Matthew 1? Joseph what? Son of David. And who's David? The what? The king. And if Joseph is the rightful king, son of David, he has to marry Mary. Amen. God can't just... Even though God can do anything, God's not going to use another person. In one sense, he could just create, you know, but if he's going to keep in line with the, with the story and with the prophecies, Joseph is the rightful heir to the throne. So, Mar- so Joseph has to marry Mary. Because, and so, so when you get to verse 24, 24 and 25, two reasons why this points to kingship. Joseph married Mary. Therefore, Jesus is his biological son. I'm not, bio- I'm sorry. Take that back. Not biological son. Therefore, Jesus is his legal son. Okay, not only that, who names him here? He or she? Who named him? He named him or she named him Jesus? He, who's that? Joseph. Joseph naming Jesus is showing the legal status of Jesus under the headship of Joseph as his father. And therefore, Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne. So that's why this is kingship. Okay, so Joseph woke up and did what he commanded. Just let me close with application here. Um, Joseph obeyed the commands. So what should we do? Obey commands. So let's go back to the very beginning of what I was saying. What trial or heartache or pain do you have that's causing you to be fearful of obeying God? Joseph was afraid to obey God. So the angel said, don't be afraid. What are you afraid of? Or what, what, what really are you anxious about? What causes anxiety in your soul these days that make you feel like you can't obey and trust God? The angel's message to Joseph is my message to you. Don't be afraid, but trust and obey God. Jesus is the forever king, and so we need to be discipled by him. God is in control of your trial. I don't know what trials you're specifically going through, and even when you have trials, your heart response is different from other people's. And so I don't know what heart issues you're dealing with now, but I do know that God is in control and God will get you through. Joseph knew that, Mary knew that, and you know that. They were to obey, Joseph was to obey without fully understanding the situation. Don't you know that's what it means to live by faith? Living by faith means you don't fully understand all the details and you trust what you do know, what God has revealed. That's how all biblical obedience is lived. So we must obey God's guidance through his messenger or through his angel. Do you know another translation for angel is messenger? So Joseph believed and followed God through the angel or through the messenger of God. And guess what you're supposed to be doing? You're supposed to obey God when God sends messengers to you to help you obey God. And who are God's messengers to you? Every other member of this church is God's messenger to you. We're all responsible for each other's discipleship as members of this church, right? And what does the end of Matthew 28 say? 
disciple each other and teach them to what? Obey or observe everything I have commanded you. So when Lance comes up to me and says, hey, PJ, you need to obey this Bible verse. Lance is an angel, not, a, not like non-human, but like angel means messenger too. Lance is a messenger from God sent to me for me to do what Joseph did. Even if I'm fearful, and if, if Lance is rebuking me or calling me to obedience and I'm fearful and I got 10 reasons and excuses of why I should not obey in this situation, if God sends his messenger to me, I am to what? Obey. obey. And when God sends his messenger to you, fellow members of this church, other people bringing the word of God to bear on your soul, and you got 50 reasons why you don't have to obey, guess what? Don't be afraid. You need to obey. You need to trust God and obey when his messengers come to you. You listen to them, you discern it by scripture in its context, and then you move forward with obedience. Value deeply Jesus' worth by relearning the story, this story of his birth. So what do we relearn? Jesus' origin. He was born of the whole, conceived of the Holy Spirit miraculously, bringing in the new creation. We have relearned his mission. He came to save his people from their sins. We relearned his prophecy. He fulfilled the prophecy that was historically fulfilled 700 years before, but then the greater projection of it was fulfilled in Christ. And God keeps his promises. And then we learn lastly about Jesus' throne that he sits on the throne of David as king and we are to obey him even when the king sends messengers to us to get us to obey him. So brothers and sisters, I close with saying what I've been saying several times this, this morning. Value deeply and even deeper Jesus' worth by reviewing this story of his birth, his origin, his mission, his prophecy, and his throne. Let's pray. Father, take these words and hide them in our hearts that we would not sin against you. And when we do sin, help us keep running back with joy and enthusiasm and quickness to Yeshua, Jesus, Joshua, Yahweh saves, Emmanuel, God is with us, the one who saves us, his people, from their sins. And then, Father, mobilize us as a church to look out at our neighbors and to the nations and help us to bring the message of Christ to them that you might add to your people whom you are saving from their sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.